You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Hugo. What is it? It's a wind-up figure, like a music box. Who built him? I would think a magician. You see this? A keyhole in the shape of a heart. Another mystery. I fixed the... It was a fire. You're coming with me. You were just listening to the trailer for Hugo, and the story is as follows. Orphan and alone except for an uncle, Hugo Cabret lives in the walls of a train station in 1930s Paris. Hugo's job is to oil and maintain the station's clocks, but to him, his more important task is to protect a broken automaton and notebook left to him by his late father. Accompanied by the goddaughter of an embittered toy merchant, Hugo embarks on a quest to solve the mystery of the automaton and find a place he can call home. The film is starring Ben Kingsley, Sasha Baron Cohen, Asa Butterfield, Chloe Grace Moretz, Ray Winstone, Emily Mortimer, and Jude Law. It is directed by Martin Scorsese and written by John Logan. And here to join me today for this Patreon throwback podcast review for 2011, I have Lauren LaMagna. Hello. Daniel Howitt. Hello, hello. Will Mavity. Hello, hello. And Dan Bear. I feel like Jean Valjean. <laughs> All right, come dream with me, people. Let's talk about Martin Scorsese's Hugo. Based on the children's book, The Invention of Hugo Cabret by Brian Selznick, it came out a couple of years uh, prior to the movie's release. And it was the kind of material that was right up Martin Scorsese's alley in terms of what he wanted to make at the time. He had a young daughter who wasn't able to see any of his past movies, so he was looking for a family film to make. And this came right at the time when 3D especially was really starting to blow up in the aftermath of James Cameron's Avatar a few years earlier. And so now Scorsese has this opportunity to not only tell... Uh, a story that his uh, daughter can appreciate and watch, but also something that is really right up his alley in terms of film preservation, honoring film history. I mean, it's like a match made in heaven here in terms of source material and director. And then as far as like a movie that pays homage to old cinematic techniques, it's then taking new cinematic techniques as well and applying those to its story. And the film, of course... (laughs) You know, because this is the kind of this is the way the world works. The film, of course, was a box office bomb, but yet it got 11 Academy Award nominations, won a couple. It even got nominations from the MVP film community and from us as well for our MVP film awards for our 2011 retrospective and won a few here and there along the way as well. So it's a movie that over time, I feel like sometimes I hear people are pretty eh, on it. And then I hear people have quite a fondness for it. I think it really depends on when you saw it at what point in your life. Um, I know some people that are younger than me who grew up watching this and they love this movie. So it's kind of like all over the place, but I'm wondering what you all feel about it too, because I don't think I've ever really talked with any of you about this movie before. And I'm sure 
those of you that are here right now rewatched it somewhat recently in preparation for this. So I'm wondering, uh, you know, what this latest viewing was like for you. So Lauren LaMagna, let's start off with you first. What did you think of Hugo? So, yeah, I've kind of spoken about Hugo a little bit on the podcast, mainly because it involves a flashbulb memory of mine. I did see this in the movie theaters. My dad did take us. I was a child. I was probably around the ages of um, the children in this film. I was probably like 12, 13, 14, young. And um, there was, I think, a hurricane or a tropical storm that happened. So it was really late. And since it was in 3D, this was the film that James Cameron had his trailer for Titanic coming back into theaters play before. And um, that blew my little brain. So all of the adrenaline that I had from that trailer experience kind of made me not forget, but like I didn't really think that much about the movie because I was so freaking out and so excited about Titanic coming back into theaters. So I was kind of excited to um, come back to this film and to see the film as a whole. And I think the film is really cute and it's really um, sweet. It's kind of like my dad and Martin Scorsese were kind of the same thing where this was probably one of the first Martin Scorsese films I saw in theaters. A, but it was also a nice intro to, you know, film studies for me as well. I didn't really know that much about the silent film era or especially um, what happened to all of these films after um, this era itself. So I definitely went immediately into like my public library just to research about all these films and what happened to them which was good but in general looking at it now from in a 2023 lens I think it's a good movie I definitely respect it it's not the film that I would recommend for people to you know dip their toe into Scorsese or dip their toe into movies about movie making I definitely feel the love but um I think I might be the lowest ranking out of all of us today, I like it. It's a fun movie. It's entertaining. But I think the story itself is not as engaging as the message that it's trying to say, which is still really important and what I take away from it the most. But um, at the end of the day, I think the first act is not the most engaging. I think the second act, even though it really is, um, still is not the strongest. So respect it. Don't love it. But I do like it. Okay. Let's toss it over next now to Mr. Family Man himself. <laughs> Howitt, you've reviewed quite a few family films here at Next Best Picture. What does a Martin Scorsese family film play like for you? Yeah, I'm the the, the resident dad here at Next Best Picture. Um, I did not watch this with my kids, for the record, but... Uh, but I am excited to uh, in years to come. They're probably they're only four years old, so they're probably still a little too young to really like engage with with this movie. But man, rewatching Hugo was such a great experience. Lauren is right. I do like this more than she does. <laughs> I really I really like this movie a lot. This is probably the first time seeing it since theaters. And man, it uh, it really still works for me. I loved it when it came out. It was my number seven of the year at the time. And it holds up so well. Um, I, I kind of disagree with with something you said, Matt. And in your setup, you you said it. You know, it was a it was a perfect match for director and source material. Um, I agree uh, with the, with what we get as the output. Yes, it was a perfect match. But on paper, I think this is kind of an oddity. It's a Martin Scorsese family movie. What that doesn't make any sense at all. Oh no no no! That part of it doesn't make so much sense. I agree with you, but the fact that the invention of Hugo Cabaret is actually about uh the french filmmaker georges Méliès, mm -hmm. and that's not something that scorsese and logan added into it right 
the fact that this was actually a story that was presented to Scorsese, it's like you see something about the creation of like the silent film era through this man's work. And it's like, how do you not knock on Scorsese's door for something like this? You know, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ultimately it was such a great, um, su- such great material for him. And, you know, I am just uh, so, so in love with this movie. I do anticipate showing this to my kids. I think it'll be such a great, you know, family friendly film for us to watch together. That does that maybe, you know, maybe I'm dreaming a little bit, uh, but, you know, maybe this could spark an interest in film history and, you know, in silent movies, whatever, because I think it's an engaging movie on its own in that. Man, I you know I love the the heightened reality of it all. The you know Hugo people watching and seeing all these little stories play out almost as mini silent films of their own. I love the vaguely French atmosphere. It's set in Paris, but not really French, but kind of French here and there. Um, and it, it just feels like a storybook kind of come to life. And I think it's a really engaging movie on its own. Re- lots of cute little little mini stories playing throughout here. But then the broader story as it weaves in film history is really beautiful. Uh, yes, uh, for pe- for people like myself, and, and I'm sure the rest of you on the podcast who know that history, it's even more engaging because I know the things that they're referencing. But I do think for people who don't know those things, it's kind of a something that'll pique their interest. And, uh, you know, I have them asking questions. Was, is that a real guy? Was George Millais a real person? Like, uh, oh, was that a real movie that he made? How did they do that? I, th- I think it really begs a lot of great questions, but not in some ham-handed like forcing it in kind of way i think it blends really seamlessly in the telling of the story so yeah all in all i i was just thrilled watching this again i loved it just as much as i remember loving it when it came out in 2011 uh, and i'm excited to, to share it with my kids uh, in a few years yeah i i hope it all works out howie because like I, i'm just imagining like the soul crushing defeat of showing them this movie and i'm <laughs> just like not getting it not loving it but there is a chance that they might, and you're right. It would be really, really cool if that's something that can be passed down to the next generation. And you have to believe that somewhere deep down, that was Scorsese's intention all along, was mm-hmm. to preserve that history and pass it down to future generations, the, the the young ones who are coming after us. And so I think if you were listening right now, which he's not, but if you were, I think he would be really, really proud to know that there are some people who have generationally, because this movie now is what, 12? Yeah, 12 years old? Mm-hmm. It's already getting to that point, I think, where a whole new generation is starting to discover it for the first time post-release, um, especially with a filmography as important and as fast as his. You know, like Scorsese's one of those guys like Kubrick or Hitchcock where – Years from now, people are going to want to just go down the line of every film that that filmmaker made. And they'll come across Hugo and be like, like kind of like what you said, oh, this is an oddity. Scorsese doing a family movie? But then when they get into the story, they'll realize, oh, that's why Scorsese wanted to do this. OK, it all makes sense now. And family friendly movies of this caliber are so incredibly rare. Just ask David Lowry. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, I get it. Look, this bombed. Okay, so maybe that's why there's not more family friendly films with this sort of budget. But um, man, I really, you know, I really wish we had more of this sort of thing. Not necessarily all, you know, focused on film history, of course, but just family friendly films that are so as well made as this. 
I think that's part of the reason I was so engaged in it. I was like, man, yeah, my kids totally can watch this. And it's a great movie. It's not just, you know, a crappy movie to, to throw on that the kids will laugh at, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I really, really like this movie a lot. There's real skill here. <laughs> real artists. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Will Mavity, how about you? What do you think of uh, Hugo? Because I, I feel like I did talk to you about this many, many, many years ago. I'm curious to know if you feel the same or if you feel different. Yeah, Hugo is the definition of a mixed bag for me. It gets major props from me for being one of the only films, especially during that immediate post-Avatar era, to really use 3D well in a way that I thought enhanced the story. And I do think it is a film that definitely lost something between seeing it in theaters and watching it at home. Because I found seeing it in 3D in theaters incredibly immersive. You know, those shots where you're just sweeping through the train stations and these massive, obviously CGI heavy shots of the outside of Paris with the snow whipping in your face. Um, I thought that that was a prime example of how to use 3D well to enhance the story. And I think probably that's a big part, as I'm sure we'll get to later, as to why it upset and defeated Tree of Life for cinematography. I think watching it at home, it becomes even more apparent than it already was for starters that it should not have defeated Tree of Life for cinematography. But um, I think more than anything, it is such a lush, visually overwhelming film that it can distract from, I think Lauren is right, the first act is weak. It really is. I know that this was based on a book that was basically a children's story that then turns into essentially a George Melier biopic. Uh, and I get that Marty wanted to keep the spirit of that, but it does feel jarring. In a lot of ways, it does feel like two different movies. And I, I remember that was something people brought up even when it came out. There was this video, I think it was called like, kids reenact the Oscar nominees. And it's that video where like, it has someone be like, I pooped in a pie. And then they're like, we solved racism for the help. Yeah. Uh, but for the um, the Hugo one, they have some kid being like, and now I'll finally get to figure out what happened to my father. And then like a George Melier is like, quiet, this is my story now. Yeah. <laughs> and it does kind of feel like that. It really, you know, Hugo very much for pretty much the middle portion of the film takes a backseat. And on top of that, his story is just inherently less interesting, especially because I think Marty was trying to compensate at times by, you know, having more of a serious dramatic story at the heart of it, which is the um, the George Melier story by throwing in these moments of slapstick, uh, like with whenever Sacha Baron Cohen appears on screen. And Martin Scorsese can do almost anything, but I don't think he does slapstick children's comedy well. And it sticks out like a sore thumb when he has those moments. And it's just kind of indicative of that, that I think the film suffers when it's just focusing on the adventures of Hugo. And looking at it from a lens of a children's movie, absolutely you know, like far and away better than much of what you got at the time and what you still got get in terms of children's movies. 
in the terms of, but I don't think it is intended just to be a kid's movie. I mean, I think he, he also did want to make it a drama for adults and it, it doesn't succeed as well there. And so there's this uneasy tension throughout it. That being said, when it works, it really works. I think a lot of, I think Ben Kingsley is wonderful as George Melier. It was one of my favorite performances uh, that he, you know, of, I don't want to say his late stage career, but um, it was one of his better performances that he had done since the early 2000s, I think. And, you know, I, I, I think even if I don't think it should have won either visual effects or cinematography, it is a very visually interesting film. You know, Marty's putting his full toolbox of visually dynamic skills on display. And, you know, that makes for a very dynamic, exciting experience to watch. Although I think he had a huge missed opportunity not doing a dolly zoom in this. I would love to see how that played in 3D, and I'm still mad he didn't. Wait, no, 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 he, no, he does. He does a do- When does he do a dolly zoom? It's when Hugo's on the tracks and he's having the nightmarish vision of the train uh, hitting him while he's on the track. Hmm. Okay. Roll it back. Well, Roll it back. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's... um. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I, I think it's an above-average kids movie. It is a it is a solid drama in terms of adult dramas, but I didn't think it deserved to be quite the Oscar contender above the line that it was then, and I don't think it does now. I appreciate that Marty, you know, continues to branch out and try different things like this in the age of innocence. It's why it's so stupid and annoying whenever people say Marty only does mob movies. Um, you know, it's really cool that he made something like this, but, um, yeah, I lean more towards the, I think the Lauren end of things. Okay. All right. Dan Bayer on to you, sir. What's been your relationship like with Hugo over the years? So (laughs) I honestly, when I was sitting down to watch it for for this uh, retrospective, I realized that I hadn't seen it since 2011. And not only hadn't I seen it since 2011, I didn't even remember really what I had thought of it at the time. It was just sort of a movie that I remember seeing and I vaguely remembered liking it. But I actually just went up to like the old – blog that I had at the time and found my um, reaction to the Oscar nominees for 2011. And Hugo was number seven in my top 10. But when writing about it, I didn't seem that excited. So interesting how like opinions on films can change over time, I, I guess, which is interesting. And also, too, sometimes I think when it comes to film year and how prominent a film is with hype and award season success, you know, I, I think that there's a tendency sometimes to maybe 
think about like the context of that film in the now and then years removed you look back and you go well mm-hmm. you know at the time yeah we were all feeling this but this other thing over here has like withstood the test of time so that's completely normal i totally get that yeah very much so and so like when i put it on i was like i was excited to watch it again because i remembered you know i remember the the very frenchness of it and i remembered um the cinematography looking pretty good in theaters in 3d and i remembered you know everything about georges melies and remembered loving that the opening like few seconds of the movie i i kind of went oh no because like will said uh the special effects have maybe not aged that well um or maybe they're just not meant to be seen in not 3d like there are so many scenes in this that watching in 2d 4k streaming that look like special effects but they couldn't have been special effects. Like things that looked like they were not actually with the actors on screen or like they were in two separate places, but they were clearly right there, but they don't look like they're right there. It's very weird. I I don't know how to, how that happened or how to describe it really well, but it's annoying. And then the first spoken line of dialogue in this movie after all that very French opening with the Arc de Triomphe and the Eiffel Tower and everything and the French sounding music, the first line spoken is Emily Mortimer saying, good morning, in this most British accent. <laughs> it so rubbed me the wrong way. I'm like, we're in France. We couldn't at least be speaking in somewhat French accents. No. Okay. Fine. Whatever. And a lot of things that happen in the first act of this, just I I was questioning a lot, but <laughs> something happens around the midway to like last quarter of this movie that I I, I don't know what has happened to me in the intervening years, but I cried several times i know exactly what it was dan <laughs> you know what it was if you don't know i know what it was i mean i have ideas about what it was it was an actor by the name of michael stuhlbarg um actually it was an actor by the name of ben Kingsley. oh fair enough okay um but but like the i just there is something about the way all of the emotion in this thing is backloaded to that last quarter that just did a number on me. It makes up for a lot. Yeah, especially with all those that gorgeous secret. I mean, the the movie full on stops dead in its tracks to basically show Le Voyage dans la Lune. <laughs> Which I I'm never going to be angry at a film for doing that, but I, it's a curious choice for a children's movie. No, I, I love it because I remember being <laughs> in school and being uh, told in film, you know, film class that exact event of the Lumiere brothers showing off uh, tra- train arrives at a station yeah. and, or the arrival of a train driver and the audience like ducking for cover as the train pulled in. And to see that like visually actually happen, <laughs> I was like, this is. 
if you're a cinephile in any way, shape, or form, or if you've studied this art form, this movie has like a cheat code to <laughs> win you over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. But at the same time, I don't remember being that emotionally struck by this back in 2011. I would have remembered that. This, it really got me this time. Do you think it has to do with um, life experience and age? Yeah, being a decade older, absolutely. Yeah, I was what almost. God, I'm almost 40 now, so I was almost 30 then. It was over a decade ago. Um, yeah. yeah. The decade will do a lot to add context. And I just think, although, like, the kids are – they're they're fine. <laughs> Stubarg is, is good, but Helen McCrory and Ben Kingsley, just everything about their performances in the last quarter of this is just magic. Unfortunately, I I kind of am not sure that Marty actually figured out if he was making a kids movie, an adults movie, or a kids movie for adults. And I think that kind of prevents the movie from being the sort of, you know, capital M masterpiece that it could have been and that the Oscars arguably tried to make us think it was. It doesn't quite get there for me, but I, woo boy, I I was really shocked by how much I loved this. Yeah, so I, here's the thing, okay, I'm going to preface by saying um, I'm inherently biased. says uh, he is literally like the god I worship to on this planet, okay? So... Know that heading in. Now, with that said, though, I will concede that I, too, think the first act of this movie is really rough in the early stages. It's hard to kind of settle into its rhythm. Scorsese doing a a, a children's film with the expected tones and beats that one would find in other family films. You know, I'm watching this movie play out and I'm saying to myself, he, he inherently knows what you need to do in order to convey it, that that type of tone that appeals to kids. But it does feel kind of awkward coming from him too, right? Because you can almost sense that there is like this conflict of let's make it cute, but let's also make it artistic, <laughs> you know? Um, the craft level in this movie is off the chain, I think. I, I, I really think that the production design work by Dante Ferretti is like some of the best I've ever seen in a movie period um and yes there's a lot to be said about Robert Richardson's uh, cinematography in this movie but I still think it holds up relatively well um nowhere near as good as it was when I saw it in 3D in the theater that that, that first time I mean that was a mind-blowing experience. I thought I had seen some crazy shit with Avatar, but then along comes uh, Scorsese to really just, like I said, there's certain shots in this uh, where he's playing around with movement and depth, and there's layers to the image in a way that, um, especially on this latest viewing, I was really paying attention to his sense of blocking and what went into making literally every single shot in this movie have something that um, would stand out to you in, in if you were watching it in 3D. Now watching it, you don't really get that sense, but I can see the intentionality of it. And that's another thing, too, about the story of this movie for me is 
I can respect if people think that the movie doesn't quite hit the mark or if it's a little uneven. Totally get that. The, the intentionality of this movie is what really wins me over. The fact that he wanted to use this framework to resurrect uh, this filmmaker for modern audiences and use it as a jumping off pad to get, as Lauren was saying earlier, if it gets you to go to the library to look up the silent film era or look up George Melies' films, I mean, how many people here, you know, just say it out loud. How many people here saw A Trip to the Moon because of this movie? I had seen it before this movie, but then I saw it again after. Before I was a very, yeah, I was a very young teenager, so I would say this definitely. I ran to the library and got every single book that I could and tried to find all of those films that I could, which you then learn are near impossible to find. So yeah, it definitely put me into a little like film one hundred and one lesson for mm-hmm. over my winter break. So yeah, definitely it was my gateway. Yeah, and so as a result of something like that, if that's what this movie can do for people, like, I'm never, ever, ever going to hate this movie. (laughs) Truly, never. In fact, I was even thinking on this latest viewing, man, this would be such an interesting double feature with Babylon. Holy crap. Talk about two opposite ends of the spectrum here in terms of entertainment. (laughs) That'll be the double feature that I do when I introduce this to my kids. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be here for that. (laughs) But yeah, I, I, I do think that – is it perfect? No. Does it win me over by the third act as it does so many other people? Absolutely. I really do think that he does conjure up – and it's going to sound really cheesy when I say it like this, but I really do believe that he conjures up movie magic in this third act. And he's able to tap into what made – not just the silent film era so impactful for audiences back then, but then by using the 3D technology of the present to have that same impact on audiences today, I just also thought that that was such an ingenious move on his part. Um, Yeah, I, I still love this movie. All these years later, I do. I don't love it as much as a lot of his other movies, um, but, you know... The, even a mid-tier Martin Scorsese film is still vastly better than so many other films out there that are trying to even like, – like, like how I was saying before, how many family films have we watched in the years that we've been doing this? And, you know, I can name, what, maybe two, three that even come close to this level of ambition and artistic integrity? Well, that's sort of the thing, like <laughs> – the themes of this movie feel like a little much for kids. Yeah, I get that, which is why I've heard a couple of people bring it up here that, uh, you know, is it for kids? Is it for adults? Is it meant to be for both? I, I do think he tried to make a film for both. And if you want to say that, you know, you got to choose a side ultimately uh, in order for there to be like a more unified vision, I can respect and understand that. I think that the first half of this movie definitely is for kids and is meant to lure them into the story that by the time we get to the second act, that's definitely for the adults. But hopefully you've hooked the kids enough that it's captured their wonder and interest to start asking questions about uh, that era and George Melier and so on and so forth. Bingo. That's exactly what I was going to say. I think the 
it seemed to be a theme that that none of y'all dug the first act, which is funny. I re- I did <laughs> enjoy the first I, act. I dug because, parts of it. Well, what I enjoyed about it is actually exactly what Matt just said that. It's not as thematically rich, of course, but it is just these little vignettes playing out. Uh, You know, a lot of Hugo people watching and seeing these little interactions that are, uh, you know, largely silent, not entirely, but um, not a lot of dialogue. It's just these goofy little things. I even, for the most part, enjoyed Sasha Baron Cohen's character because he was a little over the top. Um, And I I think that does get, the family viewers in um, with seeing these little sweet little interactions that, that really did remind me of silent films to a degree. Like, I think, I think that's what I was enjoying about the first act is that it almost felt like Scorsese doing vignettes that you might've seen in silent films, silent comedies of the era to a degree. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to our preview for our review of Hugo here on the Next Best Picture podcast. In order to get the full-length review, you will have to head on over to our Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you'll get the rest of this over two-hour-long review and other exclusive podcast content from us as well. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.